Radio Live. Superpowers. Okay, we're here with Amit Manifaz, former VP of eBay, nonetheless. Amit, what's up? How are you? I'm great. I'm having fun here in Israel. What are you doing here in Israel? Uh, I came for a combination of vacation and family events, bar mitzvahs and weddings, um, and meeting some colleagues. No, I, like, it's, it's crazy because I was also in a bar mitzvah and, <laughs> yes. and family things. Like, I think I saw you there. I think there. I think. Yeah. Okay, now is the time hours. to mention that Amit Manifaz is actually Ronan Manifaz's brother, but I think uh, being former VP of eBay uh, sort of uh, wins a position uh, coming to get an interview here. Yeah, he never answered my calls after he got that job. <laughs> so here's a great time to bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to talk to you about that live, by the uh, way. Great, great. <laughs> All right. So back to what you're doing here. Yes. Um, I, um, I'm mostly on vacation and a little bit uh, catching up with some colleagues. How's it going? Great. It's always refreshing to come to Israel because people here are unafraid. They're unafraid to dream. They're unafraid to... Um, they just assume that they can problem solve their way out of anything. Are they so, right? Um, they are uh, 90% right and 10% wrong. The part that Israelis usually get wrong is their need to be the smartest person in the room is wrong when you're trying to market outside of Israel. What you want to do is make the other people feel smart, which means that you have to dumb the ideas down so that it's simple enough for people to follow. Um, but Israelis like to look really, really smart, so they like to complicate it. Um, so you think the weakness is actually like cockiness? Yeah. Like in, in, yeah. in a it, dumb way of phrasing it? Yeah, and, and the, lack of, um, the lack of respect for the final finish, the final packaging, the final delivery, yeah. all of the support, that's considered to be, you know, not important. The important is the algorithm or the system or the hardware, but not the training manual and the support system around it and the pre-sales. That, that, that piece seems to be like the not, not intelligent work. So what happens is customers get it and then they feel stupid um, instead of customers getting something and feeling smart. So, so that's interesting. Uh, question. Do you think it's because of cockiness or is it because they don't, they, they're less listeners as as people or secondly maybe survival because they're thinking about the sales because they need the money and they're not thinking of the end game because it has no roi they they, they sell aggressively because tomorrow morning the business you know i'm talking about like a small startup like it, tomorrow morning there's no business and then they have to deliver and they don't think a step ahead i have like a third theory before you tell us what okay. i actually think the answer is and i think that a lot of the times it's actually not cockiness it's being insecure because if i speak in really complex language and you sit here and you're looking at me and you don't understand you suddenly begin to think oh you might start to think wow she's such a professional she knows what she's doing i need her by my side i need to buy her product because it's so something that i can't even conceive Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think like when people reach some sort of level where they're confident enough in what they're doing, they're able to actually dumb down and explain. Just for example, if you take a doctor, like the best doctors are the ones who are able to totally explain they to the patient. can't write on a note. Yeah, but you know, and they can explain to the patient what they, what exactly is the symptom, what the symptoms mean. And I think it doesn't make the doctor any less informative. On the contrary, it actually makes the doctor like more accessible and you know, it just makes him a better professional. And I think maybe, like, I think maybe people starting out have that quote unquote cockiness. Uh, and I think, like, maybe, and you tell us in the American culture, uh, it's more built in to simplify. Yes, uh, it is much more built in to simplify. But what I, I what I will say is, I've I've lived and worked in many different countries around the world, in Europe and in China and in Israel and in the U.S. And I think the common mistake is when somebody's trying to sell across to a different culture, they project their own way of thinking on the other people. Um, so, for example, I spent six years selling Israeli technologies to the Chinese to create products for the European market. Hmm. And I would have meetings between Israeli CEOs and Chinese CEOs. And there were three things that were completely opposite 
And no matter how much I tried to prepare people for the meetings, they always came out using their natural tendencies under pressure. One is the relation to time. Israelis feel decisions need to be made in seconds. Otherwise, they're wasting time. The Chinese, when they're making decisions, take their time because the decisions they're making is on a time horizon of five, ten years. It's not for next week. Whatever relationship, they think of it as a relationship, not a transaction. Israelis are thinking of a transaction, not a relationship. And so because they have a different relation to time, the discussion is awkward. The other thing is Israelis are always, relatively speaking, very uh, risk tolerant, very optimistic, very begin every every business uh, you know uh, presentation begins with the global dominating idea. It's not small, it's big, it's huge, it's amazing. Don't ever talk about the downside. Whereas the Chinese always want to mitigate risk. So first you have to tell, let them con- convince them that whatever they're doing, the worst that can happen is still okay. And then they're willing to have a discussion with you. The third difference was the way of speaking. You would have a meeting where there'd be the senior person in the room from the Chinese team and his team. The senior person in the room was usually just one person and maybe another from the Israeli team. And the CEO of the Israeli company wouldn't stop talking. And the Chinese CEO would say nothing. And then afterwards, I would be debriefed by both sides. And the Israeli CEO would tell me, oh, that Chinese CEO, he's a complete idiot. He didn't ask one question. He has no idea what we're doing. This isn't serious. You know, why did you bring me here? And I'd sit with the Chinese CEO and he'd say, I don't trust that Israeli CEO. He didn't stop talking for a second. He doesn't trust his team. He's very insecure. That's not a leader. And so you have this dynamic in the room. Amazing. And what's happening is people are projecting their, what they think is the right way to behave to show confidence in what they're doing. And it's often the opposite. And are they projecting or just being themselves? They're being themselves, but they're assuming the other person will react to being themselves in the same way that people do in the it's culture they come from. perspective thing, like themselves. What does that mean? In a Chinese culture, they see people who speak a lot as insecurity. You know what I mean? So yes. even, even if he's very secure, that's how they see they Chinese They perceive people. him as insecure. So you need to be aware <laughs> if you're going to work in that culture or you're trying to sell to that group, you need to be a little bit more self-aware of maybe you're not even the best person to sell to that group. Or so if you how are, can how a person uh, prepare to selling to a different culture? You have to understand what it is that they appreciate and it's important to them. Wait, so let's play with that notion for a second. I'm sure. really interested because you have also experience in you know, Europe, US, China, Israel, and Latin America. Yep. Those three examples, like the difference between, let's do the same thing on Europe, uh, US, and Latin America. Like what would be, what would I have, like, have to adapt to in the, the way I sell things or do business development in, okay. in Europe? So I'll, I'll leave out Latin America. But in Europe, okay. in Europe, things are... Um, Wait, are we talking about all of Europe or is there North and South? There's and... differences in every country. Oh, okay. So as a whole? But in general... The Europeans are more structured and consensus driven. And so you have to speak with lots of people and get them on the same page. There's not like a decision maker. There is a group. And there is usually a very set, an exhausting amount of bureaucracy that you have to go through with infinite patience in order to get where you want to go. Um, and it's very formal. Um, with regards to risk tolerance, That's where the different countries in Europe really manifest their differences. That's logical. You know, British are, are, are very worried about the PR aspects, but they're very willing to take business risks. The French are very conservative, relatively speaking. The Italians and Spanish are wide open in terms of you know, doing stuff. The Portuguese are actually, I had wonderful experience working for a year in Portugal. Amazing people. Really nice and really? friendly and very... Where did you work there in, I, in Portugal? Uh, I was, I at the time I started, I was paying an enormous amount of ridiculous rent in London to work everywhere in Western Europe other than London. And I spent 11 months in Portugal launching a Novish, which was a competitor to Portugal Telecom. And I was running the corporate division. This is like before eBay life, right? Before eBay life. Yes, yeah, so previous life. I was, was that before uh, after NCAD? That was immediately after NCAD. Okay. I had to uh, find a way. I wanted to stay in Europe to get some experience working in Europe. I owed money to Deloitte, who had helped pay my way to NCAD. And I got one consulting company to pay the other. 
to allow me to stay in Europe. Um, and then in Portugal, I was the acting chief operating officer and marketing director of Novish, which was launching to compete with the local telecom company, which was internet voice and data. Um, and, uh, and I was, I was setting up marketing campaigns in Portuguese, which I didn't speak at the time, but I spoke French and a little bit of Spanish and managed to work it out. So the, they are very, uh, more humble, um, and professional and, you know, nicely Spanish and Italian characters are a little bit more macho. So there's a lot more bravado there right? in the business. And U S the U S the U.S., there is an enormous amount of, and I don't say this in a bad way, I mean this just to articulate, a lot of superficial things are very important. How you, how you look, how you present, how it sounds, you know, how things are packaged, everything is looked at as Isn't a it signal. always true? No. Mm, no, they're, they're, no, they're the kings of branding, right? Like, it's, it's logical. They're, 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 no, but we're, I mean, they they're act the parts. human beings. Yeah, like you look at you know you look at these things. No, you look at these things, but I'll, I'll explain the importance. I think if I'm trying to take it, it's also from my experience as well. In U.S., I think I know actually they're the best country in the world of actually packaging everything. Like if you think about you know there's basketball for example in Europe and there's NBA in U.S. I, of course, there's better players, but the packaging. You know, you go to a game, everything is thought about. You know the the screen, you know, like the only uh, culture that I think is like a little similar is like Japan. Everything is like a movie, you know. I mean, like you know, uh, uh, a restaurant is branded till the napkins. You know, they know how There's to market a really, really well. Really funny, interesting story about Japan. Uh, we created a virtual keyboard using technology from Jerusalem to, with this Chinese operating we... company. So, sorry, I was working with uh, Israeli techno when I was working for Uziah Gilil, who was at the time considered. One of the fathers of high tech here in, in Israel had founded Elron and 40 other companies. Uh, he retired and I helped to run his office. And our biggest effort was a joint venture with Hutchison Wampoa, which is a big Hong Kong conglomerate. And we were they wanted to take these toy manufacturers and turn them into high tech manufacturers. And we brought Israeli technology to give them a competitive edge. We created a virtual keyboard for the design for Europe. It felt light. And so we added lead, just a rock in the thing just so it'll feel heavy in your hand because the Europeans need to feel like it, there's something there. But then when we priced it around the world, we were trying to get it down to below 100, like 99, 99. We couldn't quite do it. So like ended up at $149 in, in the stores. In every market, we're trying to get it lower, get it lower, get it lower. Then we sell to Japan. It's a partnership with Panasonic. And there, the higher they priced it, the more it sold. Because the higher the price it was perceived to be, more valuable, right. more quality. Right, it was the only place that was like one ninety nine. Then they pushed it up to two ninety nine, and they sold more. So you know the assumption is quality, expensive. I'm a I'm a better person, and so it's it was like completely backwards. No, they also buy strategically, right? They, they can spend like if someone likes like that's they're extremists. So like if they buy manga, they only buy the manga. Right. And they can save that money for that amazing. You know, like they're the next thing. They're 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 like. Uh, very niche and focused. You yeah. know, they don't need a lot of stuff. They need that. It's stuff. a whole other world. They're the only ones also with a number one pop star who's an avatar virtual reality pop star. Yeah. So there it is. Somebody the world. there. <laughs> it's a really cool place. Somebody sued the government to get permission to marry his avatar. Yeah, that's just weird. It's it's a different world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have a question. Yes. Like, sorry, I, I just know you pretty well. But you were, you were born in Israel. Yes. And you're age two. You moved to U.S. Year and a half. The country was year small, so everything small. quickly. <laughs> Couldn't handle it anymore. And then you moved to Canada, lived there, yes. finished your first degree there. Yes. And then your second degree you finished in France. Right. In INSEAD. Correct. And while working for Deloitte? Or uh, after or before? Immediately after. Actually, I finished Deloitte and I came here to run a trade negotiation between the Ministry of Industry Trade in Israel and Canada. Just a, as a grad of INSEAD? So what happened was uh, after university, I studied engineering in Toronto. Uh -huh. Then I did a startup with a friend of mine. Um, Pre-web browsers, we were training people on accessing free net corporate divisions, banks and stuff. And then it became a content management company. Um, but somewhere in there, we couldn't pay the bills. So somebody had to get a day job. And since all of my family had fled to Israel and left <laughs> me alone, I, uh, I worked for Deloitte. 
And then, uh, yeah. And then I wanted to continue my education and I wanted to do it somewhere where I'm a minority. So I went to Europe for NCAD, but once but wait, I got accepted. Why did you want to be a minority? Because I find it fascinating to learn how other people think. Okay. I realized we, we as a family, we didn't know it. And it certainly didn't feel so rewarding during. But in retrospect, we moved roughly every three years, which was very hard as kids, at least for me. I don't know if you were conscious, but um, for me, it was, it was not easy. Um, but for me, it taught me two things. One not to be afraid of change. And two, I realized there's no normal. Like whatever I think is normal, whenever we moved to a new place, there was a different normal. And I find it fascinating. There's like a semi-anthropological, you know, passion I have to just see different normals. And um, I really wanted to, if I was going back to school, not spend it in North America where I had worked and I had the opportunity to go to Europe I said, cool, that's like a lot of new normals all in a small area. And also That'd be fantastic. And NCI strategy. That's right. They have a rule that says you can't have more than 15% from, when, from any country. Hmm. So by definition, you're there. And I learned way more from the different students I was with. The professors were amazing. But the uh, amazing experience was to sit in a case study group with a Russian, an African, um, Asian, uh, Israeli, and a Canadian and talk about a case of, you know, setting up a business in Africa and you get to the question of bribery, right? And for the Russian and the African, it's just the cost of doing business. It's like so natural. It wasn't even considered, it was a natural, it was in the business plan, right? It was like we were having a discussion, right? And they're going, so we're going to need some, you know, <laughs> some money for this official and that official. And we're going, what are you talking about? And then and then you have people who grew up in, in you know, Western development and they're like, but that's illegal. You can't do that. We say, well, how do you do that? And then they challenge you. They go, really, what do lobbyists do? Don't you pay lobbyists in order to get government officials? How is that? And you eventually start to you know, question your own uh, assumptions about what is normal. And it's not a question of right or wrong. It's just here's all sorts of different ways that the world works. So, so that was fascinating. But the question I was about to answer when we went off on this tangent was I ended up in NCAD, or the reason I went to the negotiations because my sister – I called her to say, I'm going to NCAD. And she said to me, but you always said you would join us in Israel. How are you going to do that if you get into debt again by going to school? Can't you come now just to see if you would like to live here? And so I said, you know what? You're right. And I postponed my studies for a year and I needed to find an excuse to come to Israel. And so I, I don't even remember how. Somehow I ended up finding a job at the Canadian embassy where they needed somebody to organize this trade mission. And I set up negotiate. There were 60 business delegates and I set up all the deals, the briefs between the, the ministry. And then I got involved in the, I got to be in the negotiation. It turned me off politics for life because uh, I saw two egos sitting at a table that could do so many good things for each of their constituents and didn't because they just didn't want to give in. Like crazy agreements, like reduce taxes on bikinis in Canada. There are no bikini manufacturers in Canada. None. Right. In exchange for reducing taxes on wheat imports, there's not much wheat being grown in Israel. Canada has, but everybody was really proud afterwards telling me how they didn't give in. I don't know. So but wait, you had like zero experience uh, for that job, right? Yes, I had zero experience for that job. So how, <laughs> I mean, and, I, and I'm guessing telling them, listen, I need an excuse to come to Israel. Like, didn't, wasn't Obviously, that, that wasn't door. part of my pitch. Um, what I... I believe the way I got the job was I came and I said, look, I'm I came to the Canadian embassy for an interview. I'm Canadian. I moved here. I didn't tell them why. And I know about business because I worked at Deloitte for three years and I set up my own company. And the trade mission is about commercial agreements. And let me help you. They needed somebody to help not negotiate because you're not negotiating, you're facilitating the negotiation, mm -hmm. but somebody who understands business and they're all government officials. So they brought me in because I had business experience to try and help make this productive. And, well, I'm, uh, I'm convinced it does sound like you were qualified then. No, I, I'm think, at, about, I'm I at, think about the mediation here. So they're taking a Canadian that understands Canada yeah. and Israel. That that by the way, I also speak Hebrew and I understand Israel. So, and so I made most of the people in the embassy yeah. didn't. So I ended up I'm being, sorry. I ended up actually... Up until the actual negotiation, I was having an amazing time because I everybody was becoming more and more dependent on me as the in, intermediary. And I'd set up a, a coffee chain, second cup here. 
and St. Cinnamon Buns and the like the Canadian companies came oh, okay. and set up the franchise based on the agreements that okay. I nice. helped to negotiate. So I felt super productive. <laughs> How many companies did you acquire from Israel to eBay? Three in Israel, one in Sweden. Let's talk about that for a second. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and startups in technology. Now, most of the strategies in Israel, which is a totally different conversation we'll not get into, they're exit strategies and not becoming Checkpoint or Wix. We're also sold. We're also sold, but as, 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 a, as a vibe-wise, like not getting to that, that level, having an exit strategy from the beginning. Now, eBay is one of, let's say, five companies that is logical from day one that you're having an exit strategy. You know, Google, Facebook, eBay, Amazon, you know, they're, they're up there, top five, top ten. Now, you bought in tens of millions of dollars each deal, okay, companies, in various technologies and talents. One, what are you looking for when you buy a company for that kind of company? How can you plan an exit strategy better as a tip to the entrepreneurs? And three... Um, what are the minuses of selling a company to a corporate? Okay. So let me put my corporate hat on first. Okay. As a buyer, what happens within the corporation is somebody is trying to pursue a strategy. They have a goal in mind. And as part of that goal, one of the things you can do to pursue it is to buy, buy talent, capabilities, skills, markets, customers, whatever it is. You can build it or you can buy it. That buy part of the strategy is where there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs to be to exit. Wait, how do the entrepreneurs know about that strategy? Learn about the strategy of the company. For example, I'll, I'll, two of the three acquisitions that I made were part of a very public strategy because it was the number one strategic priority of eBay between 2015 and 2017. I was leading at the time what was known as structured, still known as structured data, okay, which a large part of that group actually was based in Israel. And I needed to make some heavy investments in machine learning and computer vision and uh, predictive modeling. As part of the overall strategy. As part of my strategy. That was the need. That was the need. The strategy was not a secret strategy within the company. The CEO of the company every quarter was reading out on this strategy okay, to the public. And if you read about it and you said, hmm, I could help in the strategy, you have a basis to have a discussion in, the, in this case right, with right. me, right? And a lot of people approach me under that banner. We know you're doing stuff around this. We are also doing it, okay? And then what happens, you get into the funnel of, great, what is it that they do that we don't know how to do yet? And can this save us time or money or make us better than the competitive, uh, uh, com competition, okay? Now, from the entrepreneurial side, right? You have to know, first of all, what you're good at and also what you're differentiated on. You can't just be good at something and expect people to go, wow, I'll pick you, especially if you're trying to exit, which, by the way, you should never do. You should never approach any meeting as an exit meeting. You should approach every meeting as though your business is flourishing. You know, unless you're in distress, which is not good for you in negotiating. Nobody wants would, to buy a business that wants to get out of the business. Would I meet with eBay as if I'm trying to sell them something? I would meet... Or like, what would thing. be the excuse? If, you, if it's not a financial investment, if it's a corporate investment. Because usually it's a mediator, right? Not always. Okay. No. Here's what I would say. At least in my experiences, the most productive and successful acquisitions have always begun as a business partnership. Mm -hmm. Even if that partnership was for the purposes from my perspective, I was secretly testing them. Okay. As far as they're concerned, it was a business. Right. Because you get team chemistry. Now they kick ass on the business partnership, both on the results the team chemistry, the reliability. By the way, I'll share with you a little geeky formula of trust I learned from a mentor CTO, which works both within companies, but also between teams. Trust equals capability times reliability divided by self-interest. Hmm. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be good at what you're doing, but you also have to keep your promises. And this is something that for startups, you don't know how big an impact it has on a corporate environment. And Unfortunately, the startup is in a situation where the big company doesn't always keep his promises, but that's no excuse for you not to, because you're very much judged on that, mm -hmm. divided by self-interest, right? No matter how good you are, if people think you're out for yourself, whether it's a department, two people trying to do a deal, or two companies, but other people get you know, pushed away. So that's why I say I don't think any company should approach any meeting as though they're trying to, even if they are trying to sell the company. They should approach the meeting as selling the product or the service or themselves. 
whatever it is that they think is of value, okay? Sell it. Make it great. Find a way to make whatever that person is trying to do better, okay? In my case, further my strategy. I see you can further my strategy, and I can trust you, and you deliver. I might want to go to... What, you, what you're saying is work together. Now, a lot of... I, this is an Israeli culture thing. I'm not sure if it's everywhere. But when you work together, you're scared, open quotes, that they'll steal the idea for you, the execution for you. And then what happens is sometimes they're scared that they will do it themselves. Yes. Okay? Yes, what? That's an absolutely legitimate fear. Really? Yes. I, I, but, yes. but here's the thing. You have to do one of two things. You have to either ignore it because you think that what you're doing could be copied, but you know it's very hard. And you know that the big corporation is distracted by a million different priorities. But that's my question. And the fact that they're going to focus on it is very unlikely, long enough to figure it out. But that means you really know what you're talking about. That gives you the confidence to say, let them try. They're not going to be able to beat me. Right. And or, also, why would they, or if, they wanna, if they can work with me? Any manager who's trying to do right by his company will always have a backup plan. You cannot bet on any particular thing. You're probably doing some build-buy comparisons. And when you come to the conclusion that the buy is better, then you try and go for it. But you know what? If the price is too high... I'll do it myself. So so first of all, I'm, I'm I, I giving you one option. One scenario is I know I'm smart and good enough and focused on just this thing. Nobody can beat me because I just do this. They can say they can, but they can't. They don't understand how hard it is. And sometimes it's good to let them try because then they appreciate how good you are. Okay. Okay. So that's one approach. The second approach, which is the defensive approach, which is trickier because then they're always worried what they don't know, is you um, work out both legally, which is hard, but practically situations where it's hard for them to know the secret sauce until such time as they own the company. And the way you do that, for example, a lot of the work that I did was related to data is when I did a bake-off between companies, one of the ways I did it was I shared the same data set and the same problem with all the different companies, they got to take it and I gave them a time limit, right? You've got six days. Everybody come back in six days. In this case, I was trying to test machine learning and algorithms. So I, I wanted, I didn't want somebody to human to manipulate things human. So I gave a very strict timeline for very complicated problems. By giving everybody the same data set and having them come back, it was really obvious who was faking and who had something, okay? And the people who were faking, I immediately removed them. The people who had something, now you begin a partnership where you just keep testing until the point where you think it's okay. But the risk there is you're much more dependent on the personal relationships. Like since risk I don't, for who? the risk for the startup to build trust with the big company is if I can never understand what, how you do what you do. And I'm going to keep asking. Okay. Until I do, I'm never really going to close the deal. And so you're going to be having to work overtime to make me trust you. Because I'm not sure that you're faking but me. But that's anyways me. the job. Like at the end of the day, what do, what do you buy in every company? Any company, no matter what, how big it is. Or whatever. What, you're buying the people itself. Why? Because even if you have a product like Coca-Cola, at the end of the day, th there's, there's like a team there, a key employees, then that's the real company, you know? In a high-tech world, you have IP. In the big company world, you have IP that is necessary for defensive purposes, right? And so you may have assets that are not dependent on people, Okay that you acquire control over just so other people can't have it. And also maybe because you think I'm going to buy, I'm going to acquire control because I know that what if it's in my hands, I can now do it better with my team. Yeah, but it's right. short term because IP changes. You know, there's an update two years later. Who still, does it? Still. Yeah, but you know what? And this is the thing that it makes life as an entrepreneur, if you're trying to sell, also very hard. Things change. And timing decides whether you're successful or not. It's not all That's about true. how good you are, That's right? True. And so for the moment that I needed you, if you fill, fulfilled the gap and all the other checks and balances and you are priced what I think is fairly, you go. And if not, the IP changes, the my strategy changes, the person who's your sponsor in the company changes. I've also all heard uh, of some formula for, and this is to answer you, uh, that it's not always the people about when it's a good time to buy a company and it's 3Ds. So it's death, debt, and divorce. So these are three circumstances. <laughs> for the where, buyer. Yes. Because it's three circumstances where this could be an opportunity uh, and it's not depending on the actual people because, you know, if it's a divorce and clearly, you know, people are breaking whatever uh, relationships there are and you're now buying the actual uh, formula or, you know, whatever the company entails. Uh, death well, speaks for itself. 
Uh, and by that, the way, it's the same strategy if you want to pick up ladies. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> and then just the last one. So debt. So, you know, the, the people at the moment, they got it to a certain place and there's debt in the company, but you identify potential and you think, okay, with my team, with my people, I can actually make this profitable. So it's not, I think it's not always about buying the people. Sometimes it's you're about correct, buying the execution of correct, the idea usually, that got to a certain state. Usually yeah, those are the same reasons that someone wants to sell as well. Like, yeah. I can't think of someone who's like super successful. Everything's amazing. Making money has total control. Yeah, but Maybe you, he wants a new adventure. That's, that's also a very small company perspective though. Yes. Because there's another reason, which is usually the best reason, but very rare. And that is a differentiated advantage. When you have a complementary advantage, you look at the same asset and go, I can make it 10 times more valuable. Right. Because of what I know how to do that yeah. you don't know how to do. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't mean you're in distress. That means you have a fantastic company. You're doing great. Right. Think of, I don't Synergy. know, a content company. Think of Disney. Right. Marvel produces the stuff. Nobody can distribute like Disney. Nobody can make money off the same character right. like 76 different ways every single day. It's just the knowledge of that enterprise. But that's what they bring to the table. Right. So the negotiate, you're not, you know, these are not companies that Pixar was not in distress. Okay. Right, right, right. They were winning right. uh, battle on content with Disney. But they okay? could do better. But to build all of the distribution network of Disney. Impossible, right. Impossible, right. Or so, very, very, very hard. Very expensive, <laughs> right. So, so there's always a value, like an exchange of value. Between yeah. I, I'm just saying you were listing only reasons. Oh, no, I'm not saying those are the only reasons. You get a good deal if small companies are no, in the trouble. the synergy would be but better But there's for you. also good reasons. And, 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 and I like to think that, you know, people are usually trying to do something good and not necessarily always trying to take advantage of one another. The example of benefit is the first acquisition I made in Israel when I was still based here, but just before I moved to uh, the U.S., it was an acquisition of a wonderful group of people called the Gifts Project at the time who came up with a very simple app for social commerce before people could articulate what social commerce was. And I got so excited by them. I personally drove the launch with Facebook and PayPal and eBay with them. They were just so committed and earnest to the idea to bring it to life and focused on it. And when it launched, there was such great PR for eBay being the leader in social commerce that the acquisition came out of eBay not wanting them to be then used by anyone else, right? The company was not in distress, right? It was, it was generally, right? So I just wanted to give a counterexample to the... Oh, you know, I, ju I just want to emphasize that, I mean, I'm not under the impression that it's always out of distress. I think it's uh, it's always about win-win in, right. in a way. I know, okay, when you buy a company, you're buying the people, but I'm saying that sometimes the people can only take the company to a certain level. And then mm. when another bigger or more experienced or some sort of venture that has a know-how that that company that they're buying doesn't, that's where they can scale and take that idea or concept to many different levels. And I think sometimes along that road, then the people that started the idea are not, it's not about them anymore and they're not necessarily needed anymore. Yes, and you have to remember there's a lot of people involved, right? When we're talking about exits, there's the, the entrepreneurs, but then there's, let's say, 20 employees. Those 20 employees do something. Let's say five are important. Those five are important to have all their interests in the hand. They have their own careers, their own. If you miss someone there, you can miss the integration between the company to get to that point. Yeah. It's, it's just a lot of, but now I'm interested on the opposite. Right. The opposite is, like, you found a company, okay? Now, I know your VP, second, you know, in line CEO is over you, still getting the organization to say, yes, oh, $40 million to that, to that company. Like the process of exit, that's the process. That's yeah. the length. It could finish in a month if it wasn't that, right? That is a, that is a very difficult. How do you do that? Uh, when I promoted the structured data initiative, it became a huge strategy where the company was going to commit a lot of resources to money, people, policies, everything globally. And I said, and a part of this is I'm probably going to need to acquire some capabilities and talent that we don't currently have to bolster the plan. I went to the, uh, the M&A committee and I explained to them exactly what kinds of things we're looking for and what their role is in the strategy. And then what is the business value to the company? And in this particular case, what I said was these companies are going to generate one point of lift globally, which at the time is worth about 
$350 million of profit. If we do what I say we're going to do, we're going to generate every year $350 million more profit, and then it's going to grow faster, right? So the promise was that these acquisitions will ultimately lead to that within a two, three-year period, okay? That was my business case. Then I had to prove that I had scoured the world to find the best but appropriate size, you know, the perfect fit. And my way of proving it was after we went through the hundreds of different, you know, companies. Hundreds of different. Hundreds. Like, so there, 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 I take advantage. So here's where if you're, if you're within a large global company, they have a corporate division, you can take advantage of them like an internal consulting thing and say, okay, here's what I'm looking for. What are the top ones in every country? And then they come back with a list of a hundred and then you go through it and you bring your team of experts to work with you and you sort of filter it down to the ones that look right in terms of size and capabilities and whatever, you do some outreach and calls and meetings and stuff. And then you shortlist it down to the ones you really want. And the only way I felt confident enough to stand in front of the CEO and the CFO and say, this is worth it. I think I know I can make this work was by testing them with some sort of business partnership. I would do that. Once I was convinced they could deliver, then I'd work out the right price. Then I close the deal and it would be always under the guise of a very specific 12 to 18 month integration plan where they were de- I was expecting them to deliver stuff from second, third month. Like there was very specific reason. And here's my advice to small companies who become part of a big company. I- I've seen both successes and failures. The successes are generally where the, if the strategy is so clear of why they're buying the company that they're almost their, they're not their own department, but they have their own mandate that they have to get right. And then the job of the acquirer is to just make sure the system accommodates them. Okay. Which means I had to do a lot of battles to make sure that the ops supports them and this supports them. They get an exception for this and exception for that. And, you know, make sure that they can work. Right. But their job was to deliver exactly what I said they could deliver with no excuses. Right. So I would remove excuses that were related to the corporate. They would need to remove excuses by the fact that it was technically very difficult what I was asking them for. As long as we delivered results every quarter, people said, that's a successful acquisition. And that gave me the street cred to go and make another acquisition. Right. Otherwise, it gets clogged up. My friend in biotech says it's like a transplant. You know yeah. what I mean? You put in yes. the liver, that's and right. if the body doesn't want it, then that's it right. just won't work. But, but, but as opposed to the transplant where it's really up to the body to decide, here the mind has a role to play. Right. Unless you have aligned all the company around what they're trying to do there and why. Because, for example, there's a lot of internal competition. Maybe you acquired this company and there's a division in the company that does things that they think is the same. And now you have to defend why they're doing either something slightly different or better, or you need them and not this group. Was that stressful? Incredibly stressful. Everything's stressful. When you make these decisions, for the person who's making the decision, you're stressed because the on the one hand, you have the CEO publicly declaring progress, which affects the stock price immediately. Every time you miss a target, people don't even understand what the targets are. Um, we were doing... We were doing P-Live coverage, which means nothing to you and it doesn't mean anything else to anybody else. But he was reporting on it. And if we missed, you know, if, if it doesn't happen within the quarter exactly the way you said, you're failing. If it happened a little better, you're succeeding. But everything's very sensitive to it. When you make the acquisition, you're making a bet, which now you have to prove is working, which you're not going to be able to prove until two years later. But you have to show that it's working, you know, as you go. And meanwhile, you have all sorts of internal competition and or you're trying to influence the system to accept at the same time while you're running the operation. It's it's very stressful. And you're stress. also working like in different countries, like in some of the examples. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's that I don't recommend anyone. <laughs> so, so how do you navigate that stress? <laughs> how do I navigate this stress? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's daily and it's not going anywhere. I think the way that I'm wired is once I dream of something, it becomes viscerally real to me. And then I feel responsible for everybody who's jumped into the dream. And so even if I can't get up in the morning, that feeling that if I don't get up in the morning, somebody who needs my help, it's gonna, this is going to get stuck somewhere, would get me out. And I would be more able to go and confront whatever situation on behalf of the teams and the dream that I believed in than I think had it been, you know, for me. Like, you know, if I was doing this for myself, I think I would have had much more opportunity to say, ah... This isn't worth it. But I felt I was, I was, I felt, exactly. I felt like I was doing something greater than myself. People had bet, believed, I was making presentations to thousands of people all around the world about 
what this is, how it's going to work, how it's going to save the company, turn things around. And in the two years that we worked, the company went from zero growth to 8% growth, which is on a $90 billion company, a nice improvement. It's a constant, it's a race. constant, it's a constant race. And I have to say, I don't think I dealt with the stress very well. I think Why? I dealt with Why the, do you feel that? Because, because I, I would never be able to de-stress, right? I, 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 I personally ended up getting into a, you know, situations where sleeping was very difficult. I knew I was in trouble when I had dinner when, at home one night and I had been historically, I was proud of my ability to compartmentalize, you know, when I'm present, I'm present with the family, I'm present. And I was having dinner, Friday night dinner, we always do at home whenever I'm not traveling. I was having dinner with my family. And at the time it was my five-year-old daughter. She's talking to me. And in mid-sentence, she waves her hand in front of my face because she sees that I have, I'm I'm, I'm looking at her, but I've zoned out. And when she did that, she didn't do it as though she was worried, like something strange had happened. She did it like it was a familiar reflex. And it scared me because I realized that it wasn't like just that night I had lost my concentration. It had gotten so that the family was absolutely experiencing the fact that my head was overwhelmed with a million crises, fires, and decisions. And that's when I realized that I was like, I'm not, this is not, I'm not controlling myself anymore. What did you do then? Um, One thing that helped me is to get up earlier and do some kind of sport. There was something about it that, A, uh, allowed me to kind of wake up, relax, and also think. I was, the problem during the day was there was almost no time to think because everything was meetings and crises and problem resolution and emergencies. And in the night, if I came home at all, it was all about the family and the, their you know life. There was no time for myself, but there was also no time to decompress and think. And when I started to get up earlier, even if it meant I didn't sleep very much or at all, but that act of getting up a few hours early hmm. and doing something – few hours. Otherwise, I didn't have time. Uh A few hours to go swim or surf. I got into surfing. Surfing was my zen. I would go to the beach, even if it wasn't a good day, just to sit in the water on my surfboard was... Even if it's like really cold? It was always really cold. You wear a wetsuit. If you're in Santa Cruz, you wear a wetsuit. But it was was the only thing that would, you know, ground me. And then I go back and take on the world. And but then something and the, like the waving like in front of you stop at, at the it house? It improved. It improved. It improved drastically. Stop, I don't know. It depended on, you know, what was going on that day, week, month. But uh, but the moment I was aware of it, I had to do something different. And that really was the outlet to the combination of, you know, instead of punching something, do something. Mm-hmm. And also just being able to quietly think without people all around stressing out. Good lesson. And uh, Especially when you're trying to be the person who's calm, yeah. right? When you're trying, when you're the leader, That's you're the constantly trying to be the person who's calm. You can't show, even if you're anxious, the last thing you want to do is add to the fire, right? So everybody's coming to you, a flame, right? And you're, you're going, okay, relax. But you know, the moment they walk out the door, you're wearing shit, right? So, so you need to find a way to decompress and uh, everybody needs to find their way. But it's, yeah. I couldn't believe how critically important it is. And then like, why, why did you leave? So what happened was after running that program for a couple of years, my legacy to eBay is it went from being something that nobody knew, talked about, or even people knew wasn't sure it was important to a really critical part of the business and changed how eBay worked. What was the legacy? The structured data program, it it affects every part of the business now. But like in a sentence. In a sentence, the strategy was how to understand eBay's inventory. For 20 years, eBay ran as a marketplace where people would list stuff on eBay and eBay, the systems, would have no understanding of what it is. People could write whatever they want. Mm -hmm. There could be a million iPhones, but each one looks like another listing and people don't know what it is. The system, in order to help connect buyers and sellers, needed to understand, which meant sellers had to describe things in a different way, which means adding structure to what was previously a completely unstructured experience. And buyers then could compare and see things in a completely different way. So by making that investment in the foundation, what it allowed for was buyer experiences that weren't possible before this happened and seller experiences and guidance, which wasn't possible before. A lot more clarity. And then 
eBay can intermediate more effectively between buyers and sellers and run the business rather than just have it happen like a landlord in the shuk. Um, so, so that was the big change. Once people understood the inventory, that layer of the foundation, I wanted to work on the next part, which is personalization. If I know everything about the inventory and how to describe it, now I need to learn everything about you and how to describe you. And where the two overlap, magic happens. And the, uh, the vision was to come up with an eBay store, which would be yours. So you don't want to see a billion and a half things. Mm -hmm. You should only see the 1500 things that are like, so you, it's as if you just came home. Because I'm going to buy more. Because you're going to buy more. And even if you don't buy, you feel comfortable there and you come all the time just to yes. check it out. So uh, to do that, and I think... And then buy more. And then buy more. Obviously, at the end, we of want course. you to buy more. The thing I really liked about eBay, though, was we weren't forcing you to buy stuff that we chose to force. You came because of stuff that other people were doing, mm -hmm. right? And so um, we then I went into what was called the Vertical Experiences and Platform team and came up with how to do that for people who love cars and how to do that for people who love fashion. And for people who love cars, it was very easy because it's very spec driven. Once we know what your car is, we'll only show you stuff that fits your car, which sounds self-explanatory, but it's actually it's very, not, hard it's, yeah. very hard to do. Very hard to do. But now once you have your, you check your car into the garage, your garage becomes your own personal eBay store for anything and everything you could have ever imagined. Not only the parts and stuff, but you could have branded shirts for Ford and Porsche, you know, toys. There was a couch, you know, that looks like a Porsche. Whatever it is that you want, you can have. And for fashion, it was an even more interesting uh, experiment because we were doing essentially all visual shopping, right? You would start, we called her um, Julie, our customer we're trying to sell for. She's a millennial. She's always shopping, even if she's not buying. When she's looking at other people, she's going, ah, that's a nice purse. That's a nice one. So the idea was to start with a picture of something that she liked and then have her share that with our search engine which would then bring back the inventory that looks like that picture. And we could offer it at different price points, the branded, the unbranded, depending on what she wants to spend it on, and ultimately go through an entire shopping journey with complimentary items without ever having to type any text. By the way, I have a, a suggestion for improvement for eBay. Please. Uh, as an online shopper, I've noticed that, for example, AliExpress, mm -hmm. they draw you in in a way that eBay has not yet figured out. How? And they can just even look. Because AliExpress are luring you in and encouraging you to window shop. You can basically just enter that app and just scroll down till you're dizzy and want to sleep. And it just goes on and on. And it's always, and it's also personalized. So it's pretty relevant. And with eBay, you pretty much have to go in there. And the first thing that you see is a search bar. Mm -hmm. And it's up to you. You initiate this and you're, you're generating the feedback rather than being sold to. eBay is like very much... Uh, behind in that respect so, i think sure absolutely if you want I'll to pass it on it's, it's on me to my former colleagues and then uh just tell us uh, i know we're uh we want to be respectful of your time but like you're saying you left because you just felt like you no, so what happened was um there was a change in strategic priorities the personalization effort that i was working on basically needed to be cut in half to fund payments mm -hmm. uh, because of a deal with paypal ending very soon and, oh. uh, and so at that point I said, you know what, I think this is a good opportunity to take a break and part as friends. I had, I had worked on the buy side, the sell side, the back end, the front end, every part of eBay. And I kind of wanted to do something different. And now you're doing something different. Now I'm looking at a number of different things. Well, what would you, what would you say after that whole adventure? What's your superpower? I guess I think we mentioned it earlier. I think, I think my superpower is an, uh, I have a really powerful imagination. For me, when we discuss an idea, it becomes very real. And once it can become that real, I walk around and the whole world you know, needs to interact with it. And it draws people and resources and ideas and conviction. And, um, you know, it, and it's not like it's an overnight thing. You know, the Structured Data Initiative was a nine-year overnight success. It was a, I wouldn't have predicted it before, but in retrospect, you know, I realized wherever I was, I was just trying to be useful. That was actually a great quote from uh, Jim Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great. Mm -hmm. He went to his mentor, which is uh, Tom Peters, um, and he said he was, when he was trying to make the decision, I heard him speak when he left Stanford about what to do, how to be, make sure he's successful. And he said to him, don't worry about being successful, worry about being useful. Hmm. And that always affected me because wherever it was, I was trying to be most useful, whatever it was that I was in charge of, how can I make this useful to help other people? 
And that was great advice for anyone. That was that's what led the career. I can't say I planned it, but by doing that, it just became a bigger and bigger problem uh, to or opportunity to solve. So I think that the key superpower is probably a very convincing imagination. I can convince myself, which gives me the credibility to convince other people to give it a shot. And your kryptonite? My kryptonite is the word help. Anyone who asks me for help, I need to help them. That's where I was falling with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I was trying to help too many people all the time. And I stretched myself too thin. I take it upon myself because I assume as the big brother in the family and the role model, I always had this role of being the one who could help. And I, I needed to learn how to say no. I also have trouble asking for help. Maybe this is a cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I need help. I need help. Both sides of help have been my kryptonite, not because of a bad thing necessarily. I just realized that I don't have a, a leadership of, skill, by the way. No, to ask anti, when, when help is an anti-leadership skill. Like, I'm not saying yes, there are great right, leaders that know how to focus. do it. You're right. It's like, right. I never thought also, of it that it's way. It's a distracting focus, but also it's not showing that you're powerless so you don't have the answer. All kinds of stuff like that. I'm not saying that's the way to lead. There's a lot of leaders that do, but it's usually anti how people perceive a leader. He knows what he's doing. He's True. taking responsibility. Although I, I never had problem asking for help on behalf of. The team, the company, the family, whatever. Yeah. But for me, that's right. It doesn't hit your your ego. That's right. Well, yes. Right. So help. Help is my kryptonite. Okay. Amazing. So so, um, I'm I'm personally not objectively happy you're here. I'm objective. I'm happy. Yeah. Like, um, I really want to do another session on, like, e-commerce a little bit. Uh, Sure. Sometime. I know a little bit about e-commerce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, a little bit of uh, tips how and what, because in Israel and, and also, like, at all uh, today, a lot of startups are starting up around helping e-commerce, not making an e-commerce platform. So, I'm intrigued to hear about that as well. I hope to do it soon. So, thanks, Amiti. Thanks for having me. Thanks this so is a much. fantastic show. Just so you know, not because of my brother. I have listened to many, many podcasts while I exercise to de-stress myself. Good. And they're fantastic. They're Thank really you fun. So much. You find the most that interesting people that I haven't heard about before, and you <laughs> just have these great conversations that feel really authentic. It's really amazing. Thank you. It feels like this was one of those authentic ones. Yeah, I told him to say that. I would dinner now. A good dinner. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.